Have you ever heard the expression, what's the tea? According to Urban Dictionary, it means when someone has gossip and you want to know every detail as soon as possible. So that's what this podcast is, spilling the tea on what it's like to have cancer or the big C as a young person in Northern Ireland. Recorded in 2021 during the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, this podcast series is hosted by Laura, myself, from Young Lives vs Cancer, formerly known as Click Sergeant, and Helen, myself, from Cancer Fund for Children. We have come together to talk about cancer services in Northern Ireland and share the stories of the young people and families we support. No shame in going to a fertility clinic, unless it's with your mum. <laughs> then there's a lot of shame to it. I remember going to the clinician, I guess, and he was like, oh yes, it's uh, Connor and his mother. <laughs> and he looked over his paper at me. I clearly looked like I wanted to die. My mum was trying her best not to look embarrassed. He looked over the top of his paper, over his glasses at me and said, how embarrassing for you. The man handles sperm for a living. (laughs) Looked at me and thought, oh, how embarrassing. This conversation was between Connor and Daniel, who were diagnosed with cancer around four years ago and who met during a games night organised by Cancer Fund for Children. They discussed rejecting the cancer patient identity as a way of regaining control and the difficulties of balancing their own feelings with those of their loved ones, all with a good bit of humour thrown in. Just as a heads up, there's a bit of swearing in this podcast and talk about bowel movements, sperm banking and a little bit of dark humour. You've been warned. So I'm going to start today by reading something that, Connor, you have written that I think is some incredible reflection so I'm going to read it out and then I'm going to hand over to you to tell us more about what you mean so this is what Connor's written I identified very little as a cancer patient and although I lacked the vocabulary and understanding to communicate it at the time it led to undue frustration combating misguided attempts at support i.e. offering help for simple tasks, offering participation in cancer social groups, visits from cancer charity workers. With reflection, rejection of group identification was a means of regaining control in a situation I had minimal control over. It's likely that others may well approach their diagnosis in a similar way, meaning that otherwise effective support will serve as a detriment. Though there is there was a loss of both physical and social autonomy that served as a second grief. Take it away, Connor. Uh, hello, so yes, I'm the eponymous Connor there. Um, yeah, the famous I was Connor. The famous Connor, hey, I like that. That's um, podcastier and author of Harder Read Words. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I was diagnosed about four years ago with cancer, like a weird form of cancer, but look, I know which had my right now. But... Um, yeah, and I found that a lot of the terminology and all the, like, I don't know, culture, for lack of a better word, was all around being emboldened and empowered by this identity as the cancer patient, you know? Like, everything was all about being a fighter and, like, a... I can't think of other words, but a fighter, you know? And yeah. it's all about, like, yeah, I am a cancer <laughs> patient, I am proud. All the support groups were support groups with other cancer patients, you know? Everything that was done with to support you was surround you in this idea of... Yeah. cancer and the cancer patient and like the cancer identity you know mm-hmm. and I definitely didn't understand it as complicatedly then as I do now but I just think it's important to note for people who are going through similar things right now that it's okay to in like practice be a cancer patient without identifying strongly with that because I know mm-hmm. I definitely found like as a diagnosed during my A-levels and I found that from then on I wasn't an A-level student anymore I was a cancer patient Fair enough in practice because I dropped out of my A-levels, but like. <laughs> but then too, it also impacted like beyond that, like my teachers no longer saw me as a student. They mm-hmm. saw me as that mm-hmm. cancer patient down the road and going a step further. A lot of my family stopped seeing me as like a brother or a son. I was the cancer patient that lived in the house, you know, mm. and I think the only one it didn't affect was my friends. My friends were lovely because my friends still bullied me. You know? Nice, okay. And that was good because you bully your friends, you don't bully cancer yeah. patients, your <laughs> bodies bully cancer patients. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I just think that's something that isn't really talked about much, the idea of like you don't have to identify, you yeah. can identify whatever way you want, you know, it's like your diagnosis, you do with it what you want and you 
whip everyone else into shape and make sure they follow along, you know? Interesting. Yeah, and I don't know if this was the same with yourself, but I would, I find with myself and the whole identity of being a cancer patient, I would probably identify more with being a cancer patient now than I did whenever I was going through the chemo. Yeah. Like, because whenever I was, you know, going through stuff, I was also diagnosed about four years ago, although I wasn't quite as young to be doing my air levels. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was, you know, adding taxes to the world and making money. Uh, well. <laughs> what a but citizen. I had just started adding taxing to the world and making money, to be fair. Um, Damn bragging over here, hey? Yeah, yeah, I'm just, That's just right. You know, you got to write all your stuff and, <laughs> and mention your whole big, you know... Everything. It's an audio platform. They don't know I've written anything about it, mate. I suppose. But, uh, yeah, I, I found that whenever I was sick, whenever I was properly sick, I didn't like people thinking of me as being, like, sick, even though I was. Yeah. And it's kind of selfish in a way, because you're like, yeah, I don't want you to be thinking of it that way. At the same time, it's it's not a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, way. yeah. Like that's not that's important too. There's nothing wrong with being yeah. empowered by like this identity as a cancer patient. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, again, it's your thing. You do what you want. But like, when I went to uni then and stayed in halls and nobody knew me, and mm. I was just a sickly looking student, <laughs> they were like, "He's the possible cancer boy." He, look, I, I, I still probably look cancery, but like they weren't allowed <laughs> to say it again because you can't bully cancer patients. So. Yeah, that, that, that's how I escaped it, I think, was... Yeah. And escapes the bad word, because, like, there's nothing wrong with it, but... Yeah, because it, it, I think you forget... Well, I think people talk about... when The people who talk about uh, the identity of being a cancer patient, that kind of idea, forget, is that before you were a cancer patient, you're going to have had an identity of yourself already. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you're not going to want to just go, okay, well, I'm not really that anymore. And now this new thing. Yeah, and it's very rare that someone else gets to put an identity on you. By yes. virtue of being born, you're identified as like a son or a daughter or a child in some capacity. That's all well yeah. and good. You can suck that up. And and most times whenever other people do put identities on you, it's a really negative thing. Like, you know, yeah. they put a racial identity or an ethnic or otherwise yeah. derogatory identity on you. Like, that's always seen as a bad thing, but not with... Yeah, when you make your own identity, it's generally as like a friend or a student or something quite pleasant you know mm-hmm. and yeah so as you say when someone else is putting an identity on you it's usually something not necessarily nasty but something meant to be nasty yeah you know? mm-hmm. and i definitely feel like that's kind of part of the taboo around like this cancer identity that mm. people stick you with it and then use it as an excuse to like get their grubby little mitts yeah. in your brain you know so tell me this when you were in hospital um how did you feel in terms of um, like healthcare professionals who were any part of supporting um, you guys? And I suppose in terms of this discussion we're having about identities, putting identities on people or potentially making assumptions as well. Now, this is a loaded question, Connor. You have to be careful because okay, Helen right. was one of those professionals um, Ooh. Uh, I'm not no hit me up here guys like we want to know the real talk well, I had a load of great ones except for this one woman Helen <laughs> Helen was actually after my time I I really yeah. enjoyed a professional Neil oh I met Neil oh yeah. yeah did you yeah before yeah. like Helen put him out yeah no I met him through the uh, <laughs> choir Ooh, the choir was Neil in a choir Neil was in the choir yeah. Connor yeah but Neil was in a choir Neil he was wasn't the best choir. singer in the choir and I'll, I'll, Ooh, I'll be honest but it was the luck so wasn't it <laughs> You know it, Connor. <laughs> I mean, like the rest of us were all bald, and <laughs> so like, and Neil uh, has a great head of hair. To be fair, so. I've a class we sort not much to do with identity, but it's a lot to do with. I suppose it's to do with how people don't like the idea of being seen as cancer patients. Where mm-hmm. I remember me, my friend in the hospital, Paul, and Neil himself. She's uh, listening. I would probably be Helen, but. <laughs> For the record, was uh, providing ward support at the time when you were in hospital. Um, I, I didn't know his title. I thought he just sauntered in, but I well, he could well have to be fair. But uh, tech, no, I can out. confirm his title was a ward support specialist. Uh, I see you're saying that in the past tense. Do you have any insight as to why that was? Oh, absolutely, because he is now a team manager, so oh, he's gone shit. up in the world, guys. <laughs> but um, I remember, God love Neil, he was chatting to us and he was saying, look lads, is there anything I can do, you know, to, to help you feel more comfortable? Because I feel like, in a roundabout way, what Neil was saying was like, he's aware, he, 
he can escape that identity, we can't, and he's asking, like, look, is there a way we can, like, bridge this discrepancy a wee bit? And me and your fellow looked at each other and we thought, we could manipulate the hell out of him. <laughs> we can absolutely push this to our advantage. Sorry, I hit the table there. Don't worry. So without conferring at all, the two of us agreed, right? We're going to make him regret saying that. So lovely Neil with his lovely hair and the two of us totally sincerely asked him, well, look, Neil, out of solidarity, it would mean a lot to us if you shaved your head <laughs> because we're very self-conscious that we've lost our hair and here you are with your... Luscious locks. A lo- it's just a lot of hair. It's yeah. just a lot, you yeah. know, no other word for it. It's a lot. And of course he wouldn't do that because <laughs> then he'd look like a cancer patient. And is there anything worse? <laughs> I sincerely hope you did actually ask Neil to do that. Yeah, I absolutely did. Yeah. But did he actually refuse? Yes, he absolutely refused. <laughs> I mean, I get it. I'd refuse. Yeah. All joking aside, though, I found it really interesting <coughs> in terms of what you were saying about how you interpreted him coming in and saying, what can we do here to make this better for you? Like, at the end of the day, you couldn't in many ways escape the fact that you were in being treated for cancer. So, yeah. But also you couldn't escape physically the environment you know what I mean like that almost had to come your home first for periods of time yeah and I suppose that's a whole other conversation over like in a roundabout way a lot of decisions are made for you like the decisions on how you wear your hair is made for you when you don't have any the decisions Mm -hmm. for like where you're staying that night's made for you when it's a hospital bed you know Mm -hmm. uh what you're eating that night's made for you when it's Whatever they're serving in the hospital, you know. Well, and <coughs> well, my folks were nice enough to bring me in the meals. Oh, what'd you get? I got Domino's, to be honest, but I wasn't going to say that. I got burgers sometimes, oh, you know. Yeah. I got an occasional burger too. Stuff from the local butchers, you know. It was all yeah, but it's just like the little decisions that are made for you. And I guess too, maybe that was part of it where he's like, well, look, can I give you a bit of freedom, make you feel a bit more comfortable, you know, mm-hmm. was essentially what he was saying. I suppose, what did that support from Neil and the ward look like for you guys at that time? Well, I didn't get Neil. You didn't, that's right. I was... Unfortunately. Unfortunately, I was stuck with, with you, Helen. Yeah. Um, you, Daniel. Condolences. And just, just on the topic <laughs> of, like, uh, seeing yourself as a cancer patient and stuff and that kind of thing, the, the big thing that where I felt ward support really helped me was that you gave me a chance to just talk about my life outside of cancer. Like, I was able to talk mm-hmm. to you about, like, school and uni and my mm-hmm. job and mm-hmm. all those kind of things and not have to talk about this thing that was going on right now, yeah. you know, and not have to talk about the fact that I was sick now, you know, talk about the things that I used to get up to and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like the fact that they aren't necessarily patients themselves yeah. definitely helps because it's like... I know a lot of, like, group activities that have been put into would have been with other cancer patients. Yeah. And you're in a group of people, you're going to look for common ground. If you're in a group of cancer patients, the common ground's in the name, you know? Yeah. Selvin just chats about cancer all the time, you know? So it was lovely having a third party who was like, well, I don't know what that's all about. Do you want to play Ludo? <laughs> yeah, or do you want to play Risk? Do you, oh. I can't hit the table, but, oh, Risk was intense, hey? Yeah. I only learned how to play Risk through that role, I I have to say. Me too. I first met Connor playing a game of Risk. Yeah. And it was a special moment. Because he won. (laughs) Did I win? (laughs) I think he won. I want to say Josh won, guys. I'm going to assume Josh won. Josh always won. You're right, Josh won. Because it looked like Connor was going to win, and then at the end, Josh just... I'm not going to have them rumours out there that I'm letting on I'm beating Josh. What was true, though, is... Connor, you weren't afraid to take a risk. Didn't often pay but, off, um, yeah. but you weren't afraid to take the risk. I wasn't so. afraid to take the risk. Yeah. Uh, this is very quickly going to turn into Me and my, Helen were just really conservative. Yeah. Josh was doing the really smart thing. Josh was you were playing just that big jumping brain. from place to place. Yeah, I was just gobbling up that board. Hey? I mean, normally as well, like cancer or not, I'm like, no, I'm in it to win it. But I was lost in that game. So fair play. Yeah, Helen wasn't going to let us win either. Like, yeah, that should know. be noted on the record. We were sitting trying to play the cancer card. Like, we were like, yeah, it's we're like sick, Helen. As I said earlier, about the sort of person it takes to bully a this cancer is, patient. This is the <laughs> sitting right across the table from us. That's who it is. This is the know? only joy we're going to get today. Yeah, I like, hope I still like, have a job no. by the end of this, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I have been working tirelessly. To get your job from you. I know. And it hasn't worked yet. Maybe one day, though. Maybe one day. Yeah. No, but it was... Uh, uh, just back to the 
in board support mm-hmm. and just the conversations. Like it was always nice to just have someone. Like I knew if Helen was coming around, that I'd be able to just talk to someone about whatever. Like we even found out we knew similar people and stuff. I know. Yes, it's a, sm- a small world, isn't which it? Which was, but strange, actually, like I think it's. Uh, find it really interesting that you say that because I think that was one of the joys of that sort of ward support role because I think in an ideal world a lot of the maybe doctors nurses consultants would probably have really enjoyed having some of those conversations Mm. but they just don't have the time sometimes and they're trying to to see so many people and whatnot and the joy of that role is that actually it really afforded you the time to, to really get to know people and actually then as you say you could have so many, you know, identities before being diagnosed with cancer and actually they're every bit, if not more, important to get to know as yeah. professionals when it comes yeah. to you oh, guys. Yeah. yeah, and I feel like chatting about like identities and all that. I think a big thing I'm thinking, less for cancer patients themselves and more like people around cancer patients where it's like, I remember you'll tell me stories of when I was sick mm-hmm. and I'll sit and think, I wouldn't have said that. Why'd I do that? I, I wouldn't do that. And looking back now, I'm realising, for context, I was vulgar as all get out. I'm not going to repeat <laughs> half the things. <laughs> Thank goodness. Because yes, I might get are, my bottom kicked. Yeah. <laughs> but. Yeah, I just want to say my parents are going to be listening to this podcast. So. Oh, yeah, my parents are going to be listening to it too. <laughs> like, so I'm intentionally not going to repeat a lot of things. But I, I think it over, and look, maybe I'm getting a bit up my own behind a wee bit, but. I definitely think that was me trying to reclaim this, like, angsty, teenagery, like, stroppy, grumpy, say what I want, do what I want, yeah. Because I was a cancer patient, like, I'm sure I've had my butt wiped at that stage at least once by someone who wasn't me. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, that's going to make you compensate in terms of your stroppy, teen, masculinity. Not to say that it wouldn't happen to girls as well yeah oh, absolutely but let's be honest i mean at particularly the age you were it's not the real norm thing to be going no. on or even to be fair those conversations that you're having about bowel movements and all of that stuff yeah. not the everyday chat you're having with people either yeah. and all of a sudden it becomes you're not you don't really have a choice about having the conversations they just happen and you have to go with it <sighs> yeah chat yeah. out of your depth for your age hey, and i'm not going to push anyone at this table and look i might say this and i'm like actually never mind cut that but chatting about uncomfortable situations for your age at 17 years of age i went to a fertility yeah. fertility clinic with my mum let's, no, let, let's talk about that thankfully my brother <laughs> brought me for mine i didn't have to go with my mum which would have been a bit more awkward i imagine yeah, do you want to talk about that, or do you want me to put myself in the shame pool uh, first? Sure, well, you, you can you can start first. I'll go in the shame pool first. So I remember, and again, little decisions that you don't really get to make. I remember the decision, like the question of fertility and all that was brought up. And at the time, I was getting that many tests from Poke and Prodded, and I thought, honestly, and I'm not saying it just for the sake of being shocking, I wasn't sure if I was going to live long enough for children to play a factor. Mm -hmm. So it just didn't seem like a prolific use of my time. Regardless, discussion of fertility came up and I said, absolutely not. I'm 17 years old. I'm not talking about that. La, 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 la. Mm -hmm. My decision making didn't mean anything. So I was ushered to a fertility clinic with my mum. And I think the resounding point of shame, the rock bottom of my cancer journey was going into this fertility clinic with a bunch of people experiencing fertility issues. Old man. I I, I wasn't going to start stereotyping. (laughs) (laughs) No shame in going to a fertility clinic unless it's with your (laughs) mum. Then there's a lot of shame to it. I remember going to the clinician, I guess. And he was like, oh, yes, it's uh, Connor and... His mother. (laughs) And he looked over his paper at me. I clearly looked like I wanted to die. My mum was trying her best not to look embarrassed. He looked over the top of his paper, over his glasses at me and said, How embarrassing for you. (gasps) Is that what he said? The fertility clinician (laughs) was ashamed on my behalf. You're joking. The man handles sperm for a living. (laughs) Looked at me and thought, oh, how embarrassing. 
Wouldn't want to be in your shoes. O'Connor. Did you have a response to that? Did you sit in silence? Gave him the oh, to, to his question? Yeah. I thought you meant to the fertility clinic. I thought that's <laughs> a bit intimate. <laughs> this is going places it shouldn't. Is response a no. euphemism? <laughs> no. Uh. I... I think I wanted to leave. Um, yeah. I, I don't remember what I said. It's yeah. blurry at best. Wow. Connor, can I ask now that... So you had said you're about, you were diagnosed about four years ago. So now in the position that you're in, uh, looking back on things, how do you feel about the fact that you did do the fertility preservation? I don't regret it. Okay. Look, um... Between my past self-shame, giving myself future benefit, and also my present shame, hopefully giving listeners some benefit. Mm-hmm. Look, it was all worth it in the end up. I don't have any wins yet. I'm still a child myself. Yes. But maybe down the line, when I'm a billionaire and can afford... To have children. Th- to have children, yep. Um, maybe I'll look into it. I haven't thought much about it since. I'm mm. sure... They're sitting about somewhere doing whatever it is they're doing. I'm doing what hopefully. I'm doing, and yeah, yeah. Uh, here hopefully. <laughs> and what about you, Daniel? Uh, do I regret the decision? Or no, d- like, how do you feel about the fact that uh, you've done it? It's just something that happened. Yeah. You know, like it's just yeah. it was something that uh, at the time I didn't really want kids mm-hmm. anyway, but. Uh, it, it, it's funny, it's one of those things where, like, whenever something's taken away from you, you're like, oh, I wanted them. You know, because, yeah. like, yeah. afterwards, whenever I was kind of, you know, whenever I was being told, you're going to have a risk of being infertile, suddenly I was like, I've always wanted to have kids. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Whenever, like, <coughs> that wasn't the case. But, uh, yeah, it's just something that I've done, I guess, in the future. If I need them, they're, it's there. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like... I'm indifferent to it now, but if I didn't, yeah. I would definitely be a bit more like, probably should have sucked it up and done that. Yeah, know? yeah, like if I hadn't done it, I probably would regret it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, right now, at the moment, I'm just kind of like, eh. Yeah. I find, I do find it really interesting um, in terms of your experience, Connor, even about the decision to actually go there and do it, because when you almost felt that decision was made for you, um, which is a really difficult one, to balance, I suppose. Yeah, and it's like, I can understand the motives. Like, honestly, yeah. if I was in the same position and there was, like, not necessarily my child because of the topic, yeah. but, I don't know, some, some person I felt responsibility over and they were making this decision out of, like, something as petty as, like, shame or, like, discomfort. I'm like, suck it up and do it. Think about the long term, you know? Mm-hmm. But, I don't know, it's a yeah. difficult... <coughs> Yeah, like to, Question, to, you know. to a certain extent, I was pushed into it by like people in my family and stuff, yeah. and I, and I don't regret the fact that they pushed me into it a bit. Yeah, because at the time, as you say, you're just kind of like a bit of pride and a bit of, mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that I didn't really want kids, I was just kind of like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to yeah. do that. Mm-hmm. No way, no way. Whereas now I know I would regret it if I hadn't done it. I yeah. would be like. Uh, flip sake down, you should have done that. Yeah, that that's a sticking point, I suppose. Like there was a lot of decisions that were made for me, but I suppose to my decision making abilities were a bit compromised, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I don't know if this is too I was gonna say big a question or on the spot sort of question, but um I know, uh it's probably not gonna be that interesting when you actually yeah. hear it. Um but there's a lot of chat about decisions that were made for you, things that you didn't have control over or maybe much input in. Is there anything that stands out for you or has always meant something to you, to you in terms of a decision you were able to make or um, some element of control you felt you were able to have? I realise that's a bit, it can be a bit of a s- on-the-spot question, but I'm kind of going, was there... Yeah. yeah, I'm going to have to think long and hard about that. Well, <laughs> in, in terms of yeah. bits of control that I could have, yeah. one of the things I really appreciated, yeah. and uh, this obviously wouldn't be during the days whenever you were getting chemo, but maybe afterwards. Mm-hmm. I don't know how your system worked. I was in hospital for a week and then for weeks afterwards. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A week of chemo and then weeks afterwards in the hospital. And being allowed to, like, walk down the stairs or take the lift down to the bottom floor and go to the shop 
and get a drink or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Being able to do that, even though that's such a small thing, it felt so like great, you know. Yeah. And obviously not whenever I was completely immunosuppressant, isn't that the term? Sure. Yeah, we'll go sure. with that. Yeah, immunosuppressed. Yeah, immunosuppressed. I think that's. Oh, I actually think that's a bit pr- like profound in terms of you saying actually it's a really small thing, but that just shows you almost then the total lack of control you had because that felt massive. Yeah, yeah. and it, it, every time, like I, I had chemo seven times mm-hmm. and apart from the last time I was able to go out to the shop after after like a couple of days and every time it felt amazing. Every time I was like, oh my God, this is the perfect thing that I've been given here. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think in terms of decisions I got to make, I was actually given the choice of chemo. Oh. I got, I had a surgery, got rid of the whole dang thing, but they said, look, it could come back. Do you want to go through six rounds of chemo? Or do you want to roll the dice? That's scary dice to be rolling hey isn't it oh, mm. and i uh, think uh, and what age were you when you were 17 that was 17 17 wow. that's a young age that's uh, a young like. age hey isn't mm-hmm. it and there's probably people listening to this even younger you know yeah which is but yeah and that's always the thing i think about where i'm like to be a young person going through cancer is maybe one of the scariest experiences anyone can experience in like the planet in the history of humanity you know mm-hmm. so if you're a bit of an arsehole forgive yourself you know like yeah. you're, you're allowed to hit people a clip around the ear and say oi i'm sick yeah. here like <laughs> do what i say you know yeah, like i there's a couple of times certain family members and stuff came up like aunties and uncles i just i wasn't in the mood couldn't be bothered was just cheeky to them you know it was just like oh just fuck off kind of thing mm-hmm. and like it's not it's not at all how i would speak to my family yeah outside of it but you have to forgive yourself as you say you have to be like look I was in a really stressful situation yeah of course I'm not going to be saying things that I meant you know yeah absolutely yeah I think some people and it's obviously I'm not undermining it it's obviously difficult for people in a supporting position in yeah. circumstances but it's I'm sure they'll be listening I'm sure they know that I'm talking about them. <laughs> but I remember a member of my family and them having a conversation with me by my bedside saying, look, Connor, I don't think sometimes, listening to you talk, I don't think you appreciate how hard it is for me to be sitting by your bedside mm-hmm. and seeing you get sicker and sicker, how hard that is for me. And I'm thinking, imagine me sitting in this bed yeah. Getting sicker and sicker, watching everyone else around me. A hundred percent. And still having a wee sadness because they have to look at me. Mm-hmm. I know? got said things like that as well. But it was like, you were like, not only am I in the worst position here, yeah, but also, of course I know how hard it is for you. Yeah. Every time you come see me, part of me doesn't want you to be here because I don't want you to be hurting. Yeah, mm-hmm. because... You know, like... I haven't seen someone in the past six months without them holding back tears, you know? Yeah. Because they have to look at me and I'm just such a tragic sight right now. And you like, know? I don't know why they assume, not not everyone, of course, but why some people assume that you don't get that it hurts for them too. You're like, of course yeah. I understand that. Like, of People supporting young people with cancer, your position is, it's valid, it's respected, it's very hard for you, but please recognise that you're in the passenger seat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The car's going all over the road, you're in the passenger seat, that's scary. Imagine how the poor yeah. bollocks in the driving seat feels, you know? Yeah, it's still mm-hmm. a terrifying place in the passenger seat, Yeah, yeah. but the it's guy passed out in the driver's seat, he's the one in real trouble. Yeah. Like. It's a really interesting analogy, I hadn't heard it described like that before, but <laughs> I think really I looked at it, yeah, I'm like, that's, yeah, that's really... I should write that's that really down. Good. I write that down. Coin that one. <laughs> so, was there part of then when you were particularly maybe then in hospital, as you're talking about? I mean, you're trying to work out your own feelings, feelings that are maybe being put on you, whether it's intentional or not, and you're trying to carry both. Yeah, and it's it's back to that whole thing anyone who knows me knows I keep giving out about it of like the fighter mentality Mm -hmm. 
that people with cancer like can fight it, you know, and that to people with cancer that makes them feel that makes us feel that if you're having a bad day, you're not fighting hard enough. Yeah, you're not fighting hard enough. If a scan comes back worse, it's because you didn't fight hard enough. I felt the same stresses and pressures getting a test result from the hospital as I did getting a test result from a school. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. where I was sitting waiting to see what <coughs> the test result would say about my ability to fight. Oh. You know? Yeah. And so these emotions being put in you, it's not just like a, I'm sad because you're sick. It's a, I'm sad because you're sick and I want you to get better. You know, there's almost a feeling of guilt because you're not getting better quick enough, you know. And it's cancer. It's famously quite hard to get better from, yeah. you know. <laughs> I, I always <laughs> hated the whole, like, fighter mentality. My The mentality I always had of it was just, you know, you... You just gotta take what's thrown at you, kind of thing. Yeah. Like not really fighting it, just kind of going with the punches, taking the punches. You yeah. Know? It Which is the opposite of fighting, by the way. If you ever fought, you don't take punches. That's yeah. not the way to do it. As I'm talking, I dislocated my knee a month or two ago. I have not once yet been called a fighter <laughs> or an inspiration. Uh, the paper hasn't interviewed me yet. Very disappointing. Ridiculous. There's no knee dislocation podcasts. It's uh-huh. a widely underrepresented. Field. You should set one up. And I feel like in that context, as soon as you realise how bloody daft it would be to call someone in a cast an inspiration, yeah, kind of contextualises the whole Unless thing. Unless you're talking about like a movie cast, in which case oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, all indeed. of them are inspiration. Like Tom Hanks <laughs> or something like that. Um, I think the language used around cancer is a minefield in terms of... Um, what's empowering and what can actually be quite disempowering sometimes yeah albeit as you acknowledged earlier on people cope very differently and sometimes yeah. people um d- very much need to adopt certain mentalities to help them through yeah. and that is completely fair but i do think it's important to have a conversation around how detrimental language used can be for like, someone going through it and i i definitely knew people in the hospital who like embodied the Mm-hmm. fighting spirit you know the kind of yeah. like oh yeah we'll get through this we'll beat yeah. this kind of thing but i was just kind of like like i'll take what's thrown at me yeah. you know i'll mm-hmm. yeah i'll take the hits i'll hopefully get through it you know mm-hmm. kind of thing mm-hmm. I, I didn't really i tried not to anyway put it on me that like it was a feeling of me if something bad yeah. happened you know because as connor said that does happen whenever yeah. you think of it as a oh i need to be fighting i need to be yeah yeah, like there's no wrong way to cope. If you want to embody this, if you want to be a fighter, if you want to fight and kick cancer's arse and wear war paint and a bunch of cancer merch, go off, go for it, you know? Yeah. But if you also, like, if you're sick, if there's a tumour in you and they're doing treatments to get rid of the tumour, that's... Don't put that pressure on yourself, you know? Yeah. Just get better, rest up. Eat whatever food you'll keep down, drink whatever fluids you'll keep down, and just just chill out. Like, yeah. cut yourself some slack, you know? And I know, I think we probably had a conversation around this before, but in terms of that fighter mentality and fighter talk that goes on, and the, the phrase lost their battle, and mm. I suppose the connotations of that and what that means for people, and it can come out very naturally sometimes, but actually... Um, how that can leave someone feeling is quite demoralised. Yeah, like I had, I had a, a I, I would call him a friend I had in hospital who, who did pass away. Mm. And that was how some of the nurses described it, you know, afterwards. Yeah. Back when it happened whenever I was down in Dublin, but back whenever I was back in Belfast, that was how they described it. It was like, oh, I heard so-and-so lost their battle. Mm. And I was like, no, like, if he was a fighter, then he fought bloody hard. Like, he yeah. he fought harder than I ever had. Like, you know, he was... Oh, yeah. You know, I was like, I just I just didn't like it because it sounded like it was on him whenever it wasn't. Like, it was yeah. nothing to do with the kind of person he was. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's another way of... I think people use it as a way to convince themselves that they have some control over it. You know, like... Yeah. It, 
if I'm looking at someone with cancer, they must have done something different to me. They must have some say over it. And then the same said again when someone unfortunately passes away with cancer. It's, well, they lost their battle. I'm more of a fighter than they are, so I can be rest assured if I was in that position, I would be okay. But it's still unfortunate it happened to them. And it's, no, they got sick and then they got really sick, you know, and it's, it's all a big yeah. thing. Yeah, I remember that. I, I had the exact same thing. I had a friend in the hospital and he passed away too. And I think, yeah, of course, some people said, yeah, he passed away. But some people would have said, like, oh, it's a shame. He was such a fighter. And I think he was such a fighter. He, he, he yeah, the fact that he's, he's died doesn't yeah. stop him from being a fighter. He still was a fighter. Yeah, he the, still the idea that he died and I survived implies that I did something he didn't. You know, yeah. it implies that I wanted it more than he did. And that wasn't the case. That, that wasn't the case. The implication that someone wants to have cancer and wants to die from it is yeah, yeah, a bloody ridiculous one. And it's one that's only ever pushed by people who do not have cancer. A lot of some of the, I suppose, like literature around there, when you, you look at identity and cancer and, and uh, identities people can adopt, um, one of them would be survivor. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose, would you identify as yourself, or how do you relate to that identity as survivor? Um, after, so especially after the, the, the guy I knew quite well passing away, and because a lot of the other people I knew who, who passed away were a lot older than me, yeah. whereas this one particular person wasn't. Mm. He was actually a bit younger than me. And uh, after that, um, from just in the relation of survivor, I felt a bit of survivor's guilt. Like, I felt bad yeah. mm-hmm. that I had survived because I was like, what makes me more worth surviving than this person or that person? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it, I, I, so I did take the identity of a survivor, but not necessarily in a good way. Like, yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah, I never really took on that identity because... There was a lot of guilt attached to it, where I feel like if I'm chatting people about it, I would never call myself a cancer survivor. I would say I was someone who was sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or someone who had yeah. X, Y, or Z. Yeah, I don't even know if I'd go cancer, because then that's you get people into preconceptions, and like, oh, so you were a fighter, and you <coughs> fought it off. Look, See, I was sick. I was, I was at a wedding recently, and I met a few friends who I hadn't seen in years, and like well before I got sick. So, uh... And what I said to them was, oh, I had leukemia. Because ah. nobody knows what that is. You know, everyone's like, ooh, what was that? A nice pasta? Yeah, it's <laughs> uh, like my dad's uncles both had cancer. And one of them didn't know for the longest time because he was told he had multiple melanoma. Oh. And this man was the guts of 80 years of age in rural Ireland. Right. I don't know what multiple melanoma is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So for about an indiscriminate amount of time after his diagnosis, he wasn't aware he had been diagnosed. Mm. Mm. Of course, everything's changed now. The word cancer is everywhere because it's seen, I guess, as less of a scary thing. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the doctors didn't just say to me, leukemia, and then just let me figure out what it was. They went, leukemia, it's a form of blood cancer. And I was like, oh. If we want to talk about how we were diagnosed, that's a whole other issue because uh, holy hell, bedside manner. Oh. How was your diagnosis? Um, kind of sh- should I tell the full story? So there was a day I went into work. My job involved me being on the computer. I sat down in front of the computer, looked at it, and was like, I can't see anything. Uh, the platelets in my blood had stopped being produced. So apparently your eyes bleed naturally, like every day. So my eyes just bled a lot, and there was so much blood in the back of my eyes that I just couldn't see. Or, well, I could see, but everything was really, really blurry. So I couldn't do my job. So I had to go up to the doctors who sent me to eye casualty. I'm, I'm diabetic. So they thought it was something to do with my diabetes. And they kept me in eye casualty for six hours without telling me anything, or about six hours. It might not have been exactly that amount of time. Is and it then they told me I was going to the cancer ward. Is it inappropriate to say that's the scariest shit I've ever heard in my life? It was terrifying. It sounds terrifying. Oh, I said that. So I was sent straight to Ward 10. And... 
the doctors there were quite good. You know, they yeah. were like, they're very straightforward, which I appreciated at yeah. the time because I'd spent a whole day not hearing anything. Like, yeah. thinking, going in thinking, oh, I've messed my blood sugars up a bit with my diabetes. You know, I haven't been looking after it right. Even though I knew I'd been looking after it okay. But yeah. I was like, oh, this is just going to be some silly thing. I'll be sent home tonight. You know, in a, in a week or two, my eyes will be better and I'll be grand. And then just finding... And they didn't tell us anything in eye casualty. Yeah. They, my mum thought I had brain tumours because she was with me at the time. And that's what she was... That was going through her head, you know? Yeah. So, like, I didn't have a clue. They wouldn't even tell me... Whenever they told me they were referring me to 10 North in the city, didn't tell me what 10 North was for. Yeah. Didn't tell me it was, you know, the blood, the haematology uh, ward. So did you go up Just to the ward not knowing you had cancer? I went up to the ward not knowing for sure that I had cancer, but right. being suspicious that I had cancer. Because okay. they didn't say in the place before that I that that's what it was. They just said, yeah, that's where you're going, hematology. Mm. Well, they didn't even say it was hematology. They just yeah. said Ward 10. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting that yours was like all action, no information. Yeah. Because mine was all information and a fat stack of no action where I had a pain in my side because, like, you had leukemia. I had a more typical tumory mm. boy, you know? I had a wee tumory boy in my gut, and we named him Anton because you got to get yourself a giggle. Oh, I know. I've got a, I've got a, a thing in my head that I call Igor. Oh, Igor's it's such a, wee, a good name. It's a wee, uh, oh, hello, yourself. Yeah, you can see it there, can't you? Uh, I love him. It's a wee surgical implant so that they could put chemo into my brain. Wow. That's so metal. Yeah, because they couldn't get it in my spine because I had too much scar tissue. That's so good. Yeah. That's quite a story to tell. I um, It's inappropriate to say jealous, but <laughs> nonetheless, I think that's real cool. No, uh, it, was a great, it was a great day out. I got to leave the hospital, go to another hospital, get brain oh, surgery. Oh, mighty. You know? <laughs> it was... <laughs> so, Anton? Anton. I had a wee trim in my side. Went to the hospital, they were like, that's indigestion, you dumb, silly moo. Which is fair enough, I would say it's indigestion. I get yeah. indigestion now and I'm like, oh, I'm dying. But that's because of my own experience. It's back. <laughs> it's back. And then they're like, yeah, come back in eight hours if it's still there. Came back in eight hours and they're like, oh, it's your appendix. Your appendix is going to burst. We need to scan that bad boy. Yeah, I was going to say, did they scan you or did they just assume? Or they, they just like, eh. They gave me a wee ultrasound and... It was a boy, and his name was Anton. Um, yeah, they gave me an ultrasound, and the doll doing the ultrasound was like, I can't see your appendix. I didn't think anything of that. She got a doctor. The doctor looked at it and like, right. That's strange, isn't it? So what, what happened to your appendix? Did you not have one? There was a big old tumour wrapped around it. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> so... I thought it was going to be that you'd already had your appendix out and they were just being idiots. No, 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 no. So I sat in my hospital room, twiddling my thumbs, having a wee time for it, you know, just kicking back, doing what I'm doing. And a doctor comes swishing in and this so-and-so, I'm not going to name him, not even going to name the hospital because I would get sued to oblivion for things I'm going to say about this doctor. But... This motherfucker thought he was J. Jonah Jameson from Spider-Man or something. Yeah. He came charging in. He would have kicked that door down if he could have. He was so excited to tell me I had cancer. Hey, he woke up the morning, realized he got to tell a child he had cancer. <laughs> Fucking buzzing. Best day of the week. Was hey. like, yes. Yes. Finally. <laughs> Power. what I trained for. And so he came in. Hey, Connor, I've got a soft tissue synovial sarcoma. And I said... What the eh? <laughs> Word for word, as best I can remember it, and it's pretty burned in my head. It's a rare form of cancer. I don't quite know how to handle it. It's above my pay grade. I'm going to move you to another doctor now. If you have any questions, I'll be back in soon. And he left, and I never saw him again. Wow. Oh. But yet that is imprinted. That is in imprinted in my brain. Wow. Because. It almost felt like glee. Yeah. Because he was like, this is the romantic stuff I became a doctor for. And then I he pawned me off to another doctor. He was like, I wish I could do more for you, but I haven't trained enough. 
I wish I could, but it sounds complicated, so I'm away from ET break. Hey, I'll give you to another doctor who will literally cure your cancer. I was going to say, what was your experience with your other doctor like then? Ah, oh, babe. Brill. I sat for two weeks with this rare form of cancer, but don't quite know what to do about it. But no, then I went to Belfast Hospital, and this doctor, who was the polar opposite, swung around in his chair, looked at me, scan, swung back to me, and he was like, well, look, I'll not lie, it's a tumour, it's cancer, but I've seen bigger tumours. So, he's like, I guess this isn't worth my time. No, he says, no, I'll sort it out. And I was like, are you sure? And he's like, that's my job. Wow. And I was like, mm. <laughs> okay. So I kind of fancy him. Yeah, the change okay. in attitude yeah. there is just so yeah. much. Like, yeah. Were you thinking at that stage, wow, I have just spent the last two weeks yes. believing potentially I, I'm not going to make this here. Like, yes. this is it. For, and then to come in and hear that, and it's like, what? Yeah, I'm... I'm not inciting violence, but mm-hmm. if I could have dra- drove, I probably would have gone to the other hospital and committed violent acts. Okay. You know? They're Speak- strong feelings right there. <laughs> they are strong Speaking feelings. Speaking of Fair? bad diagnoses, I do have a bit of a story. Oh, it was my, re- my re-diagnosis. Uh-huh. So I relapsed, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Right. And um, again, it was in my eyes. But this, and the back of my throat, I couldn't swallow anymore. I was also in Tenerife. Uh, nice. Which, you know, great place to be whenever your cancer comes back. Yeah. The best. To be fair to me, I did tell, I, I went with my family. It was meant to be a big celebration for me getting over cancer. Bit ironic. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> and to be fair, I did say before, I feel a bit sick. You know, I was like, I feel a bit ill. That's I don't like really want to go. That's like the horror movie. You know, I don't really want to go. I don't feel the best. And then I just spent, like, I think we were there seven, d- I think we were there a week, maybe a wee bit longer than a week. And I spent the whole time booking, just the whole time being like, <laughs> everywhere. Thanks for that sound effect. Just, I had to be specific. I had That's to let rough. you know what it was yep. like. And it was awful. I was going down water slides and stuff in between. Growing <laughs> up, it was fine. It was... It was great oh, fun. Oh, Daniel. Spent every day in a wee Spanish doctor's and every night in a wee Spanish hospital, pretty much. Wow. It was great crack. Uh, best best holiday ever. My goodness. And then it came back and I was in a really bad way. It had went into my, uh, sort of went from my, blo- my blood into my, you know, your, like. Lymph nodes? The stuff that's in your brain and spinal cord. Oh, the goo? The, the like liquid, your nervous fluid brain or whatever goo-gee. it is. Yeah, the brain goo. Yeah. Okay, Not your that? actual brain, but the liquid that's in there. Yeah, the goo around your brain. Uh, it went into there. So there was like a couple of tumours in my brain. The problem with my eyes was, the reason I couldn't see properly is because there was tumours like right there. Like just in front of my, just at the end of my, uh, what do you call that nerve? Optic nerve? Yeah. At the bottom of my optic nerve, there were some tumours. And... They were not hopeful, the doctors, whenever they saw me. They were, my my consultant was very, very honest. She was like, look, this is bad. This isn't good. But there was one nurse in particular just started talking about, uh, what do you call it, Pre, prenatal, pre-death or, care? Uh, palliative care. Palliative care. Just started talking immediately about palliative care, about me getting shipped down to palliative care and they'll make me comfortable. And that was my most horrible experience in hospital. Because even though she wasn't saying it to me, she was saying it to my parents. I could hear her and I was just like, this is horrible. Like she's just saying there's no chance for me. Yeah. And obviously there was a chance because I got through it. You know, I, I was able to, the doctors knew what they were doing. You know, they sorted it out. But like it was, it was terrifying already with the diagnosis but to have one member of staff just so nonchalantly be like, yeah, we'll send them down to palliative care, you know? They'll make them comfy. Yeah, and in a roundabout way, that kind of brings about, like, a a self-assurance I always had during, like, chemo and surgeries and all that, like, the pain, because it was mixed up with painkillers with me, surgeries, like, mad pain issues during my surgery, and I had mad nausea issues with me chemo. And throughout all that discomfort, I thought, well, isn't this better than them deciding to make me comfortable? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Mm. The more discomfort, the more rubbish they're pumping through you, the more they're, f- I almost used the F word there, the more they're <laughs> battling it. <laughs> you know, the more they're treating it and mm. 
So that's a bit of an insurance oh, in that itself. Oh, that F word. You know? I thought you meant a different F word. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, like, it was... I never got sent to palliative care, by the way. I managed to avoid it somehow. Glad to hear it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, I'd well say done, so. <laughs> I, I'm glad I didn't get sent there either. Like, I don't know where it is, but... I'm sure... Or it sounds like, and I suppose relating it back to what we were talking about, loss of autonomy and that lack of control and stuff, but as you said there when palliative care was mentioned, that perhaps like instant, even further loss of control. Yeah, like I, it, it felt scarier to me mm-hmm. than, like I'd already been, at this point I'd already been through a year of mm-hmm. chemo and of healing after chemo. You know, I'd been in hospital, I'd been told this might like this might kill you, there's always a chance that the chemo will kill you. Kind of thing. I'd I'd face death, you know, at this yeah. point. It's not as if death was a stranger to me, but at that point I was just like, Yeah, this is it. Like I am so like I was so scared for about a week. I was just like mm-hmm. this is like I was so I wasn't I think actually one of the first people I might have talked to about it was you. Mm-hmm. Like a, about two weeks after because I wasn't able to think about it, you know, I was just like, it was all I was thinking about, but at the same time, yeah. I couldn't say it to anyone, I couldn't, because yeah. that would make it real, you know, yeah. and, totally. yeah, it was definitely unpleasant. I think um, a lot of the times that kind of maybe stereotype with cancer as well, it's that um, losing your hair, you know, that kind of like, um, bald head and uh, chemotherapy and maybe being sick after chemotherapy and there is so much more to treatment and cancer than that and yeah. the, the different side effects and but also so never mind all that physical stuff but mentally what you go through and what as you say there the level of acceptance you have at different times of your reality and then carrying your own feelings other people's feelings are you ready to talk about it when's the right time to do that for you um it's constant you know without sounding really cheesy but that roller coaster you know what I mean like it is kind of like that and well I'm saying it is I imagine from what I've heard people say would never say it's a decent analogy not as good as Connor's one earlier yeah definitely analogy wizard over here but look it's a good start good start (laughs) thanks Um, (laughs) C plus kind of proud of that passing grades you know but look try better must try harder um, do you feel there is a stigma attached to cancer? It depends on your definition of stigma. Like people, people don't, I don't think people uh, intend to think less of you because of your cancer, but I think in certain ways they do. Yeah. Like people, one of my biggest fears whenever I first had it was a, uh, I was worried that people would just see me as weak now. That people would just see me as like incapable, you know, yeah. like yeah, and stuff like that. And and yes, to a certain extent, I was. To a oh, certain yeah, extent, yeah. I like in certain things, I was completely incapable of doing them, you know. But I didn't want to be seen that way. I didn't want to be seen as like, oh, look, there's Daniel. We all need to help him. We all need to, yeah. You know. Like you were talking about earlier with your friends, yeah, still making fun of you and stuff. Yeah. I think. Like, Stuff like that where, like, my mates weren't necessarily having a go at me as much. Oh, no, the greatest reassurance I've ever had was uh, the first time I met one of my friends and maybe, like, since my diagnosis. And smooth-ass, bald head. And I had a hat over it because so long as I wore a baseball cap, no one could tell that I was transparent skin and hairless. It was perfect disguise. The first thing this lad did when he saw me what sneak up behind me, pulled my hat off, and clapped the back of my big bald head. <laughs> nice. And that wasn't a person who saw me as weak or lesser, yeah. you know? That was a friend who saw me as a friend, saw a big bald head, and headed a slap. Mm-hmm. Not condoning slapping people, but I, th- I thought it was a giggle, you know? I, during my second go at cancer, you know, because I went to Electric you know, Boogaloo. The sequel. Couldn't get enough of it, hey? Couldn't get enough, had to go back. Uh, (laughs) During it, one of my closest friends, a guy I met at uni, he asked me to be his best man at his wedding, and the doctors were able to arrange it so they could get out in time to to do it and stuff, and it was great. It was a fantastic day. 
But I remember talking to him about it, and he was like, "Yeah, I didn't have a second choice." And I was like, "That meant that meant more to me than yeah. the fact that he even asked me." You know, like yeah, yeah, it meant so much that he didn't have a second option because he saw me and he knew, like, yeah, he'll be able to do it. Nobody might people meet, might not be able to hear him because he's like, "Hello, <laughs> I'm here to talk about my friend." <laughs> but you know, yeah. he's gonna do that it. That didn't matter like, to him. That's really lovely. Yeah, it just meant a lot that he like, he was still able, like he still saw me and was still able to put faith in me. You yeah. know, whereas right. a lot of people I know weren't. Yeah. And where do you sit on, um, I suppose, having met other young people who have cancer, and as you say, like clearly there's already that commonality. You know, you all all know, and so. I suppose what I'm asking is, did you have opportunities where you met other young people who had cancer and were involved in maybe some of those kind of cancer groups? Um, What was that like for you, mixed with, though, not wanting to be viewed as potentially a cancer patient? Um, I remember I went on... I don't remember the crowd who did it. I don't remember when it is. I don't remember how often it is. But I went on something called Find Your Sense of Humour. I mean, I was there. Thanks very much. You were there for that? Yeah. Um, Helen probably organised it. <laughs> Helen probably I definitely didn't. It is a very good didn't. event run by Teenage Cancer Trust for anyone listening. For people who identify strongly as a cancer patient, for people who want to find out as much information as they can, who want to empathise with other people's experience, hear other people's experiences and be fit to talk about their own experiences, it's lovely. Mm-hmm. For me, who could do nothing quicker than shed the skin of a cancer patient, to be put in a hotel room, surrounded by cancer patients, with the word cancer written everywhere, mm-hmm. was a little bit miserable. Yeah, I didn't like it. That's not in any way a detriment of the organisation itself or the event itself. Mm-hmm. Lovely event. If you're that way inclined, give it yeah. a go. You'll love it. Just wasn't for you. If you're not that way inclined, don't be afraid to put your foot down and say, absolutely not, I'm not doing that myself. Yeah. I feel like the more I said about cancer, there's an awful lot of times like that where I thought, I'm having a tough time here, but I'm going to do something that'll make my time tougher for the benefit of someone else. Wow. You know? Mm. Yeah. Like, I think the biggest story like that was making the, des- the decision to take on chemo. And I remember uh, it was me and my family and a close family member fell into tears at the mention of me taking on chemo. I wasn't crying. Mm-hmm. They were crying. That's that's fair enough. Left me in a position where, upon making the decision that I was taking on chemo, I was reassuring and settling someone who, notably, was not taking on chemo. Mm. You know, and it's that thing of, if you're supporting someone with cancer, be sure to take time out for yourself, to collect yourself, because... Yeah. I know you're trying your best, but if you're just there being upset, upsetting everyone else, you're not helping as much as you might want to. Yeah, as much as you might think you're helping as well. Now, I don't know about yourself. I have two younger sisters. Yeah. So um, with them, just on the talk about supporting people outside of it, they would, I would often be like trying to limit the kind of what could upset them, you know, trying to almost, like, control my disease in a way to, like, so that they had a better experience of it, you know, so that they weren't getting as upset as they probably still got. They probably still, like, I imagine, I hope, they still got a bit upset anyway. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You do hope they get a bit upset, don't you? Yeah, you're like, I hope she's crying tonight. No, I I never thought that. (laughs) Um... (laughs) Uh, but you know like you do kind of try to mitigate the yeah. the badness of everything a wee bit yeah. and it's that, it's just like you say like you're not doing it for yourself you're like oh I need to yeah. try and make these ones feel better you know yeah I I guess I was in a bit of a different position because I was actually the youngest of three so I was the baby of the house so in a roundabout way I'd imagine that would have factored into it of like the quote-unquote baby of the house yeah. now in the position of a vulnerable person definitely would have led to like, oh, we will make the decisions for them. We will protect them. We will care for them. 
forgetting that them was me and I could make my own decisions, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I can see that. It's an awful lot for any teenager or young adult to take on and carry and um, I suppose, again, feeds into that when you're still trying to figure out who you are, where your identity is, how you feel about that, and then you add in all that. It's um, just incredibly it's overwhelming even listening to it never mind actually going through it and experiencing it so and I think this conversation is um so great to have there's learning for everyone in it very much include healthcare professionals within that um and I think it's what I really appreciate is I suppose you coming along and giving your reflections on you know you were very open to say even though you maybe can understand things better now looking back on things at the time you maybe didn't understand as much you were querying why do I feel that or why do I feel obligated to go to this or and actually decisions that you maybe would have changed or maybe done a bit differently um really appreciate you sharing those reflections because um it's not always easy to do that thank you to Connor and Daniel for sharing their stories and thank you to the National Lottery Community Fund for funding this podcast as part of our Together We Thrive project and enabling us to share these stories Check out the description of this podcast for further information relating to sperm banking and fertility preservation in Northern Ireland. As a heads up, we will be discussing fertility preservation again in our final podcast entitled Motherhood and Cancer. If you'd like to get in touch with either Young Lives vs Cancer or Cancer Fund for Children, our contact details are in the description of this podcast. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the tea.